accounting for all its glory <laughs> is a bit of a slower burn. And I just wanted to run faster. I wanted a job in logistics and supply chain. I actually wanted to be inside the operations of a company. And I got lucky with General Motors, but they said, you have to move to Canada. I said, I'll go to Timbuktu if you want me to. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is October 18th, 2022, and we're talking with Sanjay Shah, tech entrepreneur, founder, CEO, and chief architect of international enterprise software giant, Vistech. Sanjay, who earned his master's in business administration from Lehigh's business school in 1989, will discuss the American dream, entrepreneurship, bootstrapping, adapting to see changes in your own business environment, the importance of philanthropy, and other topics. He's back on Lehigh's campus today to deliver the 14th lecture in the Donald M. Groon 49 Distinguished Finance Speaker Series. His lecture kicks off the new year of learning in the College of Business, focused on the topic, Limitations of Technology, Friction versus Leverage. Welcome back to Lehigh, Sanjay, and thanks for being with us on the Illuminate podcast today. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be here with you today. I'd like to start with a quote from an interview you did with the Chicago Tribune in 2019, where you said, I was born in India, and I'm living the American dream. And I wonder, what is your conception of the American dream, and has it changed over the years? The American dream, for me, is uninhibited access to opportunities to unleash your potential and talent. And having an ecosystem that actually nurtures it and supports it, that to me is the American dream. And I believe that I have had the good fortune of uh, not just uh, seeing it from the outside, but actually experiencing it myself on the inside. That's great. And going back to the first part of the quote, what was your life like growing up in Mumbai, India? Life for me in Mumbai was uh, what I would call a closeted bliss. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, my entire family, that includes my extended family, was in a one-mile radius. And that actually included my grade school, high school and college, all within a one mile radius. And so it was a closeted bliss and uh, it was a great support system. Uh, so uh, that was my experience growing up before I embarked on this journey. <laughs> now you've said you grew up in a family of traders and accountants. And how did that influence your decision to get an accounting degree in college in Mumbai? I think, you know, my, uh, path to pursue an accounting undergrad was kind of a bit of a hand-me-down because <laughs> um, that's what you know my, my parents and my uncles wanted me to do coming from a family of traders and accountants that's what my parents did and they thought that that would be something that I should pursue as well uh, that was kind of the family path so 
not knowing better and being in that closeted bliss, I pursued accounting. Going from that closeted bliss to leaving the only home you'd known to attend business school in the United States 10,000 miles away was a, certainly a pretty bold move. Uh, what was it that led you to do it and what specifically drew you to Lehigh's College of Business? Yeah, so I don't know, maybe it was uh, uh, an epiphany that uh, led me to think that I need to step out of my comfort zone. And as I was going through my undergrad program and you were exposed to more things that are happening in the world of accounting and finance and, and management, pursuing an undergrad degree, you thought there was this whole world outside of this one mile radius that I spent 20 years in. And as a part of our curriculum, um, we were, um, as part of you know, current events back then in the uh, mid 80s, uh, we were introduced to Lee Iacocca, who uh, single-handedly, as we all know, had revived Chrysler. Mm -hmm. And then I just sat there and I was simply fascinated by you know, what he did and it was a bit of a fanboy moment at, at that time. And I went home wondering, where did he go to college or where did he get his education from? And I found out that that was Lehigh. And coupled that with my desire to step out of my comfort zone, I said, all right, that's the place I wanna go. Oh, wow. Now, what were some of the main differences you found um, living in Bethlehem when you attended Lehigh as an MBA student compared with your life growing up in Mumbai? Um, like I said, you know, closeted bliss, a full-on support system, right? When a lot of things were taken care of us, a lot of things that we would, you know, ordinarily have to perform here were, were, were done for us as a part of growing up. So when I came to Bethlehem and then had to study, do a part-time job in the library checking out books, and cooking and cleaning all in a day's work was like I was on a different planet. <laughs> so it was materially and significantly different for me. But uh, then again, I kept telling myself that uh, I did want to step out of my comfort zone. Um, and I thought this was a fabulous place to do that. All right, the, the American dream is, is something we'll kind of keep coming back to throughout this interview. But I'm wondering, looking back now, um, in what ways did attending Lehigh's College of Business, getting your MBA here, help prepare you to pursue the American dream? Yeah, I think first and foremost, uh, uh, especially for me, coming straight out of undergrad into an MBA program, I think the foundational aspects were extremely important for me, right? The, the basics of business uh, for somebody that didn't have any prior work experience, if you will, or didn't have any meaningful work experience, I think that was extremely important. But more importantly, I think uh, the, the, the potential of what business can do for society and for you know, the economy in general is, is what really I got exposed to here, right? And having um, also shared classroom with a lot of folks who were pursuing it on a part-time basis and that came with a lot of work experience and to hear their stories at work 
uh, as well for somebody that didn't have any meaningful work experience really opened my eyes to the possibility of, wow, there is such vast potential, especially here in America, which I said is uninhibited access to opportunity. It's like, you know, the only thing you need to bring here is your talent and passion. So at what point were you bitten by the entrepreneurial bug? <clears throat> Was that something that you, you know, had started forming as a dream when you were still in India, or was that something that? Uh, in all candor, not. You know, I was actually more of a corporate person. I, uh, you know, right out of uh, my undergrad, you know, my parents wanted me to be an accountant, so right after grad school, they urged me to take up uh, a job with an accounting firm, and, which I did. I uh, started with Pricewaterhouse. Back then, it wasn't PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and then went on to work for General Motors, and then went on to work for SAP. These are large global companies. So I wasn't really on an entrepreneurial journey. I am what I consider more of an accidental entrepreneur. Is <laughs> I, uh, while working for SAP in R&D, I had an idea that I wanted to build at SAP, and uh, for some odd reason they said that they were not gonna pursue that at least you know, in, in the short term. And I felt so compelled that uh, you know, this actually was a wonderful thing to provide to the marketplace. I asked them, you know, what if I break away and, and build it myself? Would you support me? And, and, and they did. So uh, here we are 23 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go back to, um, you were at Pricewaterhouse, no, PricewaterhouseCooper, uh, after getting your MBA, you kind of on the path that you had been on, you know, it sounds like basically your whole life. Yep. Um, and within six months, again, you made another one of those pretty bold moves of leaving that job to go to Canada for an another country yep. to take an operations job uh, with General Motors. Mm -hmm. So what was it, what was your, that led you to do yeah, that? Yeah, so... Interesting. Um, you know, accounting, for all its um, glory, <laughs> is a bit of a slower burn in the initial days. You know, I, I, I just felt that, uh, you know, at least back then, you know, my impression was that it was, it was a bit of a, a slow burn, and you know, they put me in audit and so on, and I just wanted to run faster. And, uh, and then I was auditing the operations of large companies. And then I said to myself, why am I auditing other people's work? What if I were to do it myself? And so I said, hmm, you know, I really need to get over onto the other side and see what actually operations is like. And frankly, with a degree in accounting, it was harder to find a job in operations. I wanted a job in logistics and supply chain. I actually wanted to be inside the operations of a company. And I got lucky with General Motors, but they said, you have to move to Canada. I said, I'll go to Timbuktu if you want me to. <laughs> but I want a job in operations. Um, and so I, I guess in, in retrospect, it was a little bit of an impatience on my part mm -hmm. uh, to have changed so quickly. And does, did working in operations and logistics, you know, becoming familiar from the inside with supply chain, did that serve as a link to your move to 
you know, the enterprise software and a position at the, you know, multinational software giant SAP. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, that's another big move. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it was at General Motors that, uh, you know, I was first introduced to what are called MRP, which is Materials Requirement Planning, and DRP, which is Distributions Requirement Planning Systems. Back in the early 90s, uh, you know, right, you know, the first systems to get automated were accounting systems. And then came supply chain systems like MRP and DRP. And because I was in operations, we ended up, you know, implementing an old mainframe version of SAP software. That's what, that my, that's what my introduction to, to software and to SAP. And then it turns out that SAP wanted to, uh, I, I guess must have appealed to them uh, because they were a vendor and again, and I was on the customer side mm -hmm. and they wanted to build, and they were, wanted to grow their presence in the United States. And at some point in time, I always wanted to come back to the US. Uh, and they said, well, we're starting up a Chicago office. Uh, would you like to be involved in helping set it up from the ground up? And I thought, oh, what a fabulous opportunity to set up an office from the ground up. And so I accepted the position and moved to Chicago. Okay. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> now, and for some of our listeners who might not know, um, be familiar with enterprise software, what, what would be an example of enterprise software and what it does for companies? That's actually a very good question, Jack. Um, if you look at a company and broadly divide the, you know, the, the, the primary functions that a business performs, uh, uh, pardon my slightly long-winded answer, but I think it's important to provide the context for what is enterprise software. Sure. Uh, a, a company is involved in, in buying, which is procuring to payment. And then it's involved in, in making stuff, which is a make to store, that's the supply chain aspect of it. And then order to cash, which is the sales and marketing aspect of it. And then what's called hire to retire, which is how do you manage your talent? And then finally, record to report, which is the financial aspect of it. So these are the five primary business functions any enterprise, any business enterprise runs. Any software that enables any of those five functions is considered enterprise software. Uh, and then ERP, which is enterprise resource planning, is are really companies uh, that managed all five functions. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now you had mentioned that um, while you were at SAP, you were um, working in research development for some of your time there, and that you had recognized some um, functions that you felt could be improved Correct. in Correct. The, the software, and that you thought you could improve them. Um, so how did that transition go from them handling it themselves to saying, you know, something, if you want to go set it up and work with, with us independently, uh, at least somewhat independently, um, we'll, we'll support you in that. Yeah. So, um, you know, having pursued my education in accounting, and, and by the way, while I was at Price Waterhouse for six months, I even obtained my CPA because that's what I was told. I said, I want to advance faster after three months, and they said, go get your CPA. So I did that in the interim as well. 
and then moved to supply chain to work in logistics. And then at SAP, um, I actually took an R&D position to develop software on the sales and marketing side. Um, so again, I wanted more diversity in my uh, exposure as, uh, to business functions as well. And, and so there were some sales and marketing functions that I thought these enterprise software systems could do better. And, um, uh, but you know, they were all the rage and uh, you know, they couldn't sell them fast enough. Um, and so I actually presented a proposal to SAP's R&D leaders and said we should build this type of an extension to, or this type of capabilities. Uh, and they said, uh, yeah, we see your point, uh, but uh, I think let's park it for now. We'll, we'll do it later. Yeah. We agree with you, but maybe now is not the right time to do this. And like I told you earlier, I, something told me that, no, we should do it now. Uh, and so I said, hey, what if I were to go off and do it? And if it's successful, will you support me? You know, sell into your customer base, which they gladly agreed. I mean, I was one of the first employees of SAP having helped build their Chicago office. So I had, a, I had the inside track, if you will. <laughs> and, and, and that's how, that's how you know, it, it came about. And if they'd agreed to it, I don't know, probably I would have still been with SAP. <laughs> Hypothetical. And this in your story I find very interesting, that from the start, it seems, um, you were determined to bootstrap the launch of Vistech, you know, to get your new company up and running without any outside investors. Why was that so important to you? I, I come from a, a family of accountants, and, <laughs> and so equity and, you know, your share of the overall pie is, is, is very important, is, is looked at very astutely. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up with that mindset and I said, hey, I want to do this. And um, frankly, for the, for the first year or so, it was just me. Uh, you know, I thought I had enough skills to write the software, to be able to sell it, implement it, and also do the accounting for it. <laughs> and so I felt, hey, if, yeah, I, you know, I, perhaps youthful exuberance, I guess that I could do it all, and I really don't need capital to do this because I can do it all myself. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to hire people to do this. Uh, uh, I wanted to bootstrap it. And then I felt that as soon as the initial successes came about, and perhaps it was you know, uh, good fortune that my timing, turns out, was impeccable because it was you know, 99 and 2000, the whole you know, uh, the year 2000 and companies couldn't spend money fast enough because they all thought computers, uh, the systems were gonna come to a grinding halt with the year 2000. Right. So for me, you know, it was uh, very fortuitous timing. Now you reached the point obviously, you know, after at least that first year where you did need to hire on other people, all of that. So what were some of the real, the most important keys to the development and growth of Vistec, you know, and, and those first years and then over the years since. Yeah, so it really was, I quickly realized that uh, this, this is not a one-man <laughs> operation. Uh, it could be argued that maybe, you know, it should have been uh, a multi-person operation from, from the get-go, but 
anyway, uh, hindsight is always 2020. Um, I quickly realized that I needed to build a team. And I actually started, the first thing I wanted to do was to build a team of engineers. Because, you know, again, having been in R&D, an accountant, a person, a CPA, coding software is a little unusual, right? Add that to sales and marketing software. Uh, but I quickly realized that I need, you know, to hire engineers, and that's where I started. And then slowly over time, um, you know, I was looking for enough like-minded people to, uh, that I could persuade to uh, join the cause. And it was, it was gradual, right? For me, it was, it was never about, you know, I want to grow 50% next year, or I want to double in two years. I never really had any such ambitions premeditated or, or predetermined. For me, it was just about, you know, take the opportunities as they arise. But having built a team of engineers, what I thought was uh, the first order of business. Mm -hmm. Over not a whole lot of time, you know, you quickly amassed a client base that, you know, most companies would give their IT for. You know, I mean, Apple, Walmart, 3M, Viacom, Intel, mm -hmm. Bayer. I yep. mean, I think everybody yeah, the who's recognized who of their uh, of, of their industries. So what were, um, what were the steps that led those you know, huge international cor corporations to say, this is what we need to do our business better? Yeah. I think what worked in, in my case uh, rather well was uh, my partnership and association with SAP. Every single one of these customers that you mentioned, or these brands that you mentioned, run their enterprise functions, the functions I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. on SAP. In fact, you know, 95% of the Fortune 500 companies run SAP as their ERP system. Um, so I, I really partnered with SAP to help broker uh, introductions to these organizations. And I said, I know you run SAP, but I can help make these functions run better. And then, and, and really partnered with SAP to open doors yeah. for me. So that's what worked in my case. I didn't have to just knock on doors, right? Really the cold calling. Cold yeah. calling, yeah. So I, I had that tailwind for me. Uh, perhaps an unfair advantage, but an advantage nonetheless. <laughs> okay. Now it strikes me though that um, one of the reasons that you're living the American dream is because your willingness and ability to adapt and change um, as circumstances dictate. And you know, I think the clearest example is the cloud revolution of the past decade or so, which you know, has seen software largely move from a product that was purchased to run on site to a cloud-based service. So if you could talk about how you've navigated what surely was a disruptive change and you know, the purest sense of that in the enterprise software world. Great, you know, uh, that's also a, a terrific question, Jack. In fact, just uh, earlier today, I was talking to a, a few students here at Lehigh over lunch and uh, this topic came up as well. Uh, so it's, it's very topical and um, if, if I were to 
say over the 23 plus years that uh, you know we've had Vestax, this is that the cloud revolution is the single most important what I call tectonic shift in in how you know uh, how we go to market and how we provide our products and and services. Uh, it's just the democratization, the democratization of enterprise software uh, that is enabled by, by cloud computing is just staggering. Um, and so um, what, what our challenge is and what we have done, um, I would say uh, arguably uh, a little better than others, is to see how um, we can adapt to the current mindset of how folks want to consume software, right? It's sometimes when you've done things a certain way for 20 plus years, it's hard to shed that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, uh, you know, uh, what do they say? You know, my, my, my favorite quote in the, in the technology space is uh, from Andy Grove at Intel, only the paranoid survive, uh, is that we've been paranoid all along, that some tectonic shift's gonna happen uh, which may render us, uh, you know, less valuable or less attractive. Um, so we are still, I, I wouldn't say, you know, we, we are still, we are still on the journey towards the cloud transformation. We are not there yet. We are not a born in the cloud company, but, um, you know, we have to figure out a way to, to, to preserve our core and yet, you know, find growth with our initiatives in, in the cloud. But it's, it certainly is a tectonic shift. Yeah. Now you had talked about you know the importance of, of bootstrapping at the outset, and as these changes were coming in 2019, um, you sought outside investment for the first time through a private equity firm. T talk about that decision, um, which you know I take it you know of course the capital is is always important, but it wasn't just capital, was it? No, it wasn't. In fact. You know, as, as we were trying to find our footing in this, uh, in this new world of cloud computing, uh, I felt that um, bringing on a private equity partner that has done this numerous times for, for other you know, organizations could be helpful for us. Just to bring an outsider perspective, because as you know, we've never had any outsider perspective, at least from an investor standpoint. Mm -hmm. So we, um, but yet I didn't want to give up a lot of equity, <laughs> going back to that mindset. Um, so we took a little bit of what it's called growth capital um, to just kind of, for, for two reasons, to uh, you know, wet our feet with private equity and more importantly to help us you know, find our footing and, and help us strategize for the cloud. It really wasn't for the capital. And then um, just last year, I believe it was, you acquired Web Data Solutions, GMBH's assets and team. Um, how does that fit into this as well? Sure, so, so Web Data is a, a big data software company based in Germany. Um, and that, uh, you know, big data is all the rage. Uh, what does that mean in, in, in a nutshell? You know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, I guess an overabused term, everybody talks about it and uses it in, in different contexts, but essentially companies want to be able to synthesize data that is not generated from inside their corporate systems and use that for decision making. For example, comp competitive data, demographics data, 
you know, what, what people are buying, uh, POS data is called point of sale data, right? What is flying off the store shelves and so on, and use that for their internal decision making. And I felt that this company was working on some cutting edge technology to be able to synthesize this external data, what's called big data, and we could use that to help our customers make better business decisions with this data. That was the rationale behind that acquisition. Now, you, you've talked in the past about the possibility of Vistex going public sometime in the future. So do you have a, a time frame in mind for that, or what would lead you to do that? Jack, we've had a great run as a private uh, entity, and there are advantages to being private. Uh, you know, you don't have the usual quarterly pressures and, and so on, but uh, we believe that uh, you know, we've also reached a stage where we are ready for public markets. I think we are ready for some more light to be shown on us. <laughs> um, and so in that regard, I think that is, is something that uh, you know, we are pursuing. Um, but the timing of that is somewhat uncertain. The current market environment, notwithstanding, <laughs> as we all know, you know, these are really challenging times for financial markets. But um, you know, I, I see that in our future. Uh, it's not if, it's, it's when. Now, uh, shifting gears just slightly, but still on topic, um, it, it seems that your conception of the American dream also includes a responsibility to give back. And one of the ways you've chosen to do that is by founding the Vistex Institute for Ex Executive Education at Lehigh's College for Business. So if you could talk a, little, talk a little about what inspired you to provide the generous gift that help create this institute and the need that it meets. Interesting, you know, I had the opportunity of um, actually, uh, you know, going to an exec ed program at uh, one of the biggest purveyors of exec ed programs. Um, and frankly, I actually found that quite uninspiring. Um, and I, I felt it was a little more pedagogical uh, and a little less uh, real-worldly, if I may use that, mm -hmm. that, that phrase. It's about, I mean, exec ed is, you know, 80% uh, of exec ed is done by, you know, five providers, right? <laughs> um, so you end up going to one of the five. Uh, um, but I, I felt that, you know, exec ed could do with, uh, you know, a different approach, a, a more refreshing approach. And um, what better place than my alma mater to uh, explore that. And that, that was the genesis mm -hmm. behind the Vistex Institute here. And the, the execution then here, as opposed to the program that you found uninspiring, um, what do you find inspiring about the approach that's happening here? I think two things, right? One is uh, the, um, what I, we do not want to tell, again, these are, exec ed means they're working professionals. They're, in many respects, already accomplished professionals. Um, the uninspiring part, part, part for me was that, okay, you are at this stage in your career, this is what you ought to do to be a better professional. 
And here, I think our focus, again, has to be, we're going to teach you how to digest information, how to discern it, and how to process it. And then you decide what is best for you. And what would you like to do next with the new learnings that you've had? And not instructive in this regard, right? Uh, I felt that the, I don't, I don't want our exec ed program here to be too instructive. It should be exploratory, right? Here are the things that you should be aware of. Now, you're already an accomplished professional. Figure out how best to apply it to your job, your current job, your future job, your whatever you choose to do. I think that's the difference that we are trying to, and it's gonna be a work in progress. Right. <laughs> now your, your philanthropic efforts also include your, your company, which um, you've created the Vistex Foundation, which provides grants to nonprofits focusing on health education and basic needs, as well as the Vistex Endeavor, which is an employee-focused charity centered on volunteerism. So if you could talk about what those philanthropies mean to you and what they're doing for others. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, as a private company, you know, we really don't have to have, uh, you know, philanthropy per se, you know, for showcasing that, you know, we have philanthropy so more investors would be attracted to us. Philanthropy for me, and I, would, and I say that for my team at Vistex, really comes from within. Um, so uh, we really wanted to you know, have two programs. You mentioned the Vistex Foundation and, and, and the Vistex Endeavor. It was really, um, I, I wanted it to be employee-initiated and employee-driven programs, right? So where employees, you know, come to us with, you know, causes that are important to them and, and so on. It's just, again, giving back, right, uh, in the communities we live and work. Uh, so that is on, on, on the Endeavor side. Uh, we felt that it's, it's very important for our employees to feel that they're doing more than just, you know, collecting a paycheck and, of course, you know, uh, uh, doing their, their, their work at, at Vistex. So it was more of a, uh, you know, more of a, a, a cohesion-driven uh, initiative as well for our employees. The Vistex Foundation, on the other hand, is, is really, uh, the idea is to undertake larger projects um, in uh, the areas of health uh, education and, and micro-lending for that matter. Uh, um, as the old adage goes, to whom a lot is given, a lot is expected. So uh, this is, you know, my way of, uh, you know, providing uh, uh, resources to, to folks that would not have otherwise expected it, right? So our, our goal is to do projects in countries, areas, regions where, you know, it's where people are, people are least expecting it. Okay, finally, just wonder if you have any advice for the budding entrepreneurs who may be listening to this podcast who hope to live their own American dream one day? I would say a couple things. One, be authentic. Uh, what do I mean by be authentic? Is um, I think do not put on a demeanor or a show 
you know, just for the sake of accomplishing something short term. Like, don't be pretentious. It might work for you short term, it never really works for you long term, or even mid to long term. So be authentic. Um, and the second thing I would say is, have great pride of ownership in everything you do. Whether you are mopping the floor, or providing advice to the world's largest companies, have pride of ownership. You know, if you are gonna put your imprint on something, have pride of ownership. It's, it's amazing, once you have that mindset, it makes a big difference to your output. Sanjay, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your wisdom and experiences with us. Thank you, Jack. It was uh, great, you know, having this dialogue with you and uh, uh, I, I, I hope uh, uh, folks uh, uh, listen to it and, uh, and, and, and enjoy it. Thank you again. Sanjay Shah, 89, MBA, is an exemplar of how Lehigh's College of Business helps prepare students to go out into the world after graduation and become successful entrepreneurs and global leaders. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. This is Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.